My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. Number one is you can write a brief review on iTunes or number two, you can go to interviewthefuture.com and you can become a patron. My guest today is Faith Popcorn. Faith founded her Futurist Marketing Consultancy in 1974, and the New York Times has called her the Trend Oracle. But according to Fortune magazine, she is the Nostradamus of marketing. Faith is a trusted advisor to the CEOs of the Fortune 200 companies and has predicted a variety of trends, such as cocooning and its, and its impact on the COVID culture, social media, and the metaverse. She has been invited to speak all over the world and is the best-selling author of four books. Finally, to use Faith's own words, she is a Jew who grew up at a Christian school, a Caucasian who grew up among Asians, a sixth-generation New Yorker, and the adopted mother of two girls from China. So, welcome to Singularity FM, Faith. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to, to have you here. Uh, so, after this kind of longer introduction, I usually like to ask my guests to introduce themselves in their own words, but in a sentence or less. So, how would you do that? If we were to meet at a conference, at an event, or anywhere else, let's say we sit next to each other in an airplane, and I ask, who, who is Faith Popcorn? I would say that Cassandra of this era. And if you remember Cassandra. Oh, I remember Cassandra. She insulted Apollo and she, and he cursed her that she would have be, she would be blessed with foresight, but she would be cursed that no one would ever believe her. And that is. So she foretold the fall of Troy, but nobody believed her. That is me. I foretold the fall of, you know, meat, and I foretold the fall, oh, so many, many things, you know, uh, that people would be staying home more, that uh, people would be uh, in revolt and angry, that women would rise. Film would be replaced by digital. I believe that people will be replaced by digital, eventually. I mean, okay, we'll we'll get there. Okay. I, I was just trying to point out that I think I watched an interview with you where you were uh, hired by Kodak, supposedly in the eighties, and you told oh. them that film would be replaced by digital. Yes, I was hired by Kodak to do the. We're always hired. It always starts at the future of future of pharma. This one was Future Film, Coca-Cola, you know, where's it going? So, yeah, Future Film. We came back and we said, after many interviews and an endless methodology, the future of film is digital. And they fired us because we they were angry. They were furious that we didn't come back with the future of film, which is what they wanted to support a fast-fading company in Rochester, New York, 
uh, it wasn't the answer they wanted, and they were very, very upset. And of course, history, you know, proves the future of film was digital, and they had a digital department. They used it for medical. Yeah, of course, and of course, Kodak invented digital photography in the 1970s and sat on it for a long time. By the way, uh, my wife's family on her mother's side is all from Rochester, New York. That's cold. So we've seen the impact uh, uh, of that kind of decision to ignore the future uh, all over that community. And unfortunately, in many ways, Rochester reminds me today of Detroit. Uh, just like, you know, the car industry has kind of the auto industry in Detroit has way gone way past its peak now. Mm -hmm. The same or maybe even worse applies to Rochester after Kodak went bankrupt. As said, a ghost town really, right? I mean, you know, yeah, there's a great penalty to not listening to to the correct, let's say, uh, prediction of the future. However, in the business model, the person that didn't listen is often retired by then. So there's no penalty to the actual people or teams that go, no, nah, that's not going to happen. So I have little examples like, uh, you know, uh, like oat milk, you know, uh, the replacement of protein, you know, by plants, you know, those didn't kill people. They hurt sales. But the big ones, like I, we came to um, Coca-Cola with a vision that, bottled water was coming because and I got it environmentally because the water was starting to get bad you know you know we always laughed in Europe that people drank bottled water but here you know we didn't and, and you know we saw water was not as pure as it should be and we said to Coca-Cola you have the most beautiful purification systems for coke you know there's water and coke and they came back to us this is a chairman at that time says well if we put and I hear a lot of that kind of logic if we bottle water, people will understand that there's water in Coca-Cola. <laughs> you laugh now. I had to be polite and go, uh-huh. Because one of the things, beside not believing Cassandra, uh, chairmen are very good at not believing uh, consumers or not trusting them or not thinking they're smart, even a little bit smart. And also, chairmen are very often surrounded, like Mr. Putin, with people that reinforce their lack of vision a lot of times. Because chairmen are really good sometimes at running companies and numbers and balance sheets and, you know, uh, like, you know, where the ingredients are come, all this stuff, right? But they don't get out much, you know? They kind of like don't get out much. And so they're not listening you know, to the culture and they're not, they think everything is like silly and ridiculous, like the coming of psychedelics, the coming of nutraceuticals. Like, these are simple, simple things. Nicola, I'm sure you saw these things too, but, but heads of companies or even middle people, they're more rewarded we're like animals we do what like little you know dogs woof woof we do what we're rewarded for so if we get like treats bonuses for not you know taking leaps 
and we get yelled at for taking leaps because they could be wrong, and sometimes they're wrong. Uh, we just go along and, 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 and are extremely conservative about what we want to go out on a limb about. So that's the explanation for those who do not listen. So what's the impact of making predictions that people don't believe that come true eventually? True depression. Because that example with Coca-Cola you're giving, I think, was from the 1980s, I right. believe. Late yeah. 80s, maybe. Um, so how does that make you feel and what's the impact on, on your behavior or your strategy or your futurism or even like your psychology? I call it marketing masochism. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure I'm a masochist because for four decades, I just keep doing this. You know, they say, if you do something with the same response, you're an idiot. And I keep doing it with the same response. It's, I come from a very like kind of rough background, um, the East Village. I'm sixth generation New Yorker. I, yes, was brought up in Shanghai because my father was head of the CID in Shanghai, which is like the CIA. My father was really, he was a criminal lawyer and a detective, a really good detective, which I think I got those genes. But I come from what was a kind of a slum, you know, East Village then, Alphabet City. I'm extremely oppositional in nature because to survive in my family, you had to be oppositional. Um, my mother, too, was a lawyer. She was a negligence lawyer. My grandmother was, like, running, like, you know, some tenements downtown, and she was... Everybody in my family was tough, especially the women. So every year I get up and I think, this will be different. I'll say this, and, it's, and I can build an incredible case. Fabulous. We call it in law, you know, circumstantial evidence. So I can build you a case for my view of the future that's bulletproof, yet I cannot prove the future. So, and we'll talk about the way I discovered the future maybe later. And every single sure. time they say like, yeah, that could be, probably not. I mean, most recently we repositioned a, um, like a, like a, a large communications company or a you know pipe that put you know internet into people's homes let's say and we said internet service provider yeah we said hey uh people are going to be staying home more and that pipe and stop calling yourself a dumb pipe they call themselves a dumb pipe right because they just put like you know stuff through there nothing nothing important except connection and i said People are going to get their education through that pipe. They're going to get medical. They're going to get protection. Uh, they're going to be able to eventually change their rooms, you know, color, scent, everything. And because what's coming is a rougher and rougher environment where people will be staying home more and more. And cocooning, I named and framed in 1982. But I meant it to be very, like, um, cozy. People stay home and they'll have little gardens, the Martha Stewart version, you know. She gives us a lot of credit for, you know, naming her whole frame. Yeah. But cocooning became, started to become like defensive. 
we want to keep stuff out. We want to filter air, filter information, filter everything, keep our kids at home. So the chairwoman at that time said, you know, this is very apocalyptic, which in marketing means I don't like it. It's too hard to sell internally. And then they say to me, not the first time, I feel like a washerwoman. Can you scrub this deck up so it looks a little bit more positive? So, you know, I grab my detergent and I go back and I scrub it up, make it look a little like nicer, not so scary. And COVID hit three months later. And then she called me and she said, over compliment, you know, how did you know? I said, my view of the future did not change because COVID, COVID intensified, you know, the timeline. You couldn't go out. So you had to move this a little quicker. It made it move faster. But it was the same vision. And we brought back the deck and they, re, you know, repositioned actually the company based on that. And uh, that was that story, but it was accidental success. No, it wasn't like they believed it. So uh, I have many, I'll tell you the uh, Campbell Soup story, my favorite guy, you know, when, when, when you want me to. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to that. But before we jump into futurism, and I'll, I'll kind of put you on the spot and ask you to walk us through a couple of civilizational scenarios. But before that, I mean, people would be dying to find out where does Faith Popcorn come from? Is it your real name? Oh, oh. And if not, how, how did you get oh, it? Oh, of course. That's kind of, I'm sure everyone would have this at the back of their mind. So why don't you walk us through that story okay. and, and tell us? So when I first started my company in 74, like I, I think I was the first futurist really, you know, in, in marketing anyway. I was a futurist because I don't like being yelled at. As a matter of fact, I have tremendous aversion to being yelled at, having come from a yelling, screaming family. Uh, so I thought if I predict the future, nobody can yell at me. Boy, was I wrong about that. But anyway, a couple of years after I opened, Fortune Magazine called me and they said, we want to come visit you and talk to you about what you're doing. And I thought, wow, well, I have no clients, so... I better make up stuff. And I made up like what I thought was going to happen about this and what was going to happen about that, you know, and eventually that became a New York Times column, but not for years later. And these guys came up and two guys and they had pencils, honestly, and they writing notes and they, they said, well, we're here because we were fascinated with your name. I said, you came up here to find out how I got my name, you know, not what I'm thinking. So this is what I told them. I said, when my great-grandfather came here, he was an immigrant from Italy, near Lee Iacocca's grandfather. Um, his name was Corne, and when he came across on immigration, they used to call him Papa in the old country, came across, you know, on Statue of Liberty. They said, what is your name, sir? And he said, my name is Papa Corne. I said, and I shortened it to popcorn, and that's it. They write everything down, and they printed it. Maybe that's why they never came back to interview me. But the true story is I was a young copywriter working for an Italian art director, which was the model in those days. The art director didn't speak. He mainly grunted and the copywriter wrote, you know, and 
was my first job, and my name was Faith Plotkin. And he thought that was terrible. And he goes, Plotkin, how can I say this? This is awful. And he started to introduce me as popcorn. This is Faith Popcorn. So I just changed it. I thought, that's better. Okay. And I went to AKA, you can do, also known as, which is a legal way to change your name without going to court. And if you're known by this name for longer than your actual birth name, it becomes your legal identity. So I'm Faith Popcorn, and it's on my passport, and the IRS knows me by this name. And that's the story of my name. Wow. Do you not have some kind of a feeling, though, that that's some women today would say that's kind of a very misogynistic type of a story? You know, a, a boss, a male boss who couldn't pronounce the, the, the female employee's last name. And, and Changed it. In, instead of, like, doing his best, best to improve himself, decided to, instead of changing himself, he changed her name, basically. You know what? Uh, and and also maybe somewhat derogatory, is it not? Or okay, j- just to 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 give you an example, my blogging name is Socrates. Now that's not a name I picked either. That name was given to me when I was in the army. And in the army, being a Socrates is not a wise strategy to survival. Uh, neither is it complimentary. It is pretty derogatory because you're not supposed to ask questions. Ah. You're supposed to follow orders. Asking too many questions gets you killed. So when I was called Socrates then, it was not a compliment. It was a derogatory alias. But, you know, I thought, well, it may be true. I probably ask way too many questions. So instead of fighting it, and I'm happy to pay the price for it, obviously, after spending so many times in the regimental arrest and all that. So, in solitary, usually. (laughs) So, I might as well embrace the name rather than fight it. So, I wonder if you don't feel like there may be some kind of an element like that. I love that you're asking me this, Nicolai. Do you know, nobody's ever asked me that, which is fascinating. Uh, Well... I thought that he saw the true me with popcorn. Popcorn? I was, I came up with stuff. I was always saying like poppy things. Like I'd be, like one time a client took me to a factory when I worked in the advertising business. I was a, you know, copywriter, right? And he took me to this uh, pot pot and pan factory, Farberware. And um, and I saw this redundant, you know, thing that they made pots by forming the metal over a like a like a model, right? A thing, or, it's a press, right, a press. Yeah. And I said, "Isn't this dangerous? Because don't people get kind of hypnotized and have accidents in factories?" I was known for these pop questions, and also was known for clients going, "Don't bring her back. Do not bring her back." <laughs> So I felt that it was much more of an expression that he saw the true me. But of course, I was also in love with him. So maybe that's even more. Is that anti-feminist or is that natural? 
He was my first boss. He was 22 years older than me. His name was Gino Constantino Garlanda. He had a beautiful name. And <laughs> typical yeah, Italian I was crazy about him. So, yeah, that's the rest of the story. So, no, I, I, I've never, I, I have not been, what do you call it, formed by men or women. You know, maybe my mother, but that's about it. So I didn't, I didn't feel that way. Well, good, good. And I can see how, you know, even when something is derogatory, it could still be true at the same time. I don't think it was derogatory. You know, it was true. If somebody sees your true soul, and, you know, here's another story about Plotkin. You know, I was a young woman. I was raised in the East Village. I went to jazz clubs. I didn't like that name. I thought it was heavy, you know, Plotkin, right? So I had cards made up. And they said faith on them. And my phone number at the time, at home, I lived at home, right, was AL4 Algonquin 46222, so which is a beautiful phone number, by the way. And it said faith. And I would hand out these cards. Well, I was thrown out of clubs because they thought I was a hooker. So <laughs> I've had worse stories um, about my name. So... I don't know. And then my mother told me she was going to name me either Fanny or Faith. And I thought that was, okay, good. I lucked out with the Faith. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, let's, let's, let's move on. I was just like trying to, to see if there's like sort of like a, not a feminist angle on that or, or something out of curiosity, because one thing that we are going to discuss and why don't we bring it up now, even like, you're probably one of the earliest women in the field of futurism. Uh, and even today, what is it? You started in 1974, we're 2022. So let's say 48 years later, there's very few women um, futurists. And, you know, a, a proper criticism of my podcast, uh, a fair criticism of my podcast has been that out of, let's say, 300 interviews that I've done so far, probably, I don't know, 10 to 15% of them have been women mm. only. And therefore, it's, you know, highly inequitable in that sense. Uh, gender equity is lacking, clearly. Now, my excuse traditionally has been that that's kind of a reflection of the representation of people within the industry, uh, the futurist industry and the the general tech industry and AI and so on, but my wife is not willing to give me any breaks on that, not even a little bit. And you know, I've put some substantial effort over the years to kind of improve that. And I used to have much worse ratio, like a 6% ratio. So it, I've improved it by a factor of three, but it's still like grossly inequitable. So how do you feel like a woman in a heavily dominated male field and what is it that you think, and does that even have anything to do with the fact that you're a Cassandra, that your clients don't believe you? Would you think that if you were a man, your clients would be more believing of your forecasts? I... Where is the gender yeah. is what I'm trying to ask here in a different way. 
in futurism and, and how have you dealt with it and how do we deal with it generally as professionals in the field but also as a society? Women are natural futurists. Maybe that's because they don't have titles futurists because they're natural futurists. Because, and I'm not saying, well, we could talk about how I figure out the future, but they're natural futurists because they're, and I can go back to cave days too, but um, they're, they're so intuitive. Let's talk about what intuitive means. It means that your senses are more developed. So when a woman, and you know this, and I know you've, you're a brilliant man, you've studied a lot. You know, in the cave days when they the men went out and hunted using one side of their brain, men usually use right, right, right at, at one time and then left, left, left if they can another time. Women go left, right, left, right. That's how their brains fire. And the reason for that is they were holding the baby. They were making the, let's say, the food. But their peripheral vision actually is uh, better than men's because they had to look for the lions and the tigers in back of them. So when your mother said, I have eyes in back of my head, I can see everything you're doing. There's truth to that. Women like can look around and, and incorporate a much more a more of a 360 view. So I don't think women think of themselves as futurists. Maybe they don't have title of futurists. The 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 ones that are buried in companies, uh, Fortune 200s, uh, and this is my least favorite thing, so, are insights. That's what they do. Head of insights. What is an insight more than a, you know, a vision of the future? But it's buried in this extremely boring title uh, about research. You know, futurism is uh, supported by research, perhaps, which we could talk about later. But it's not created from research. So really, they're saying that people get these insights, which are visions, which are like visions. You get, in, you know, like, oh, that's going to happen or this is going to happen. So I think there are futurists that are female. But I don't think that they call themselves futurists. I think they're hidden in companies. I think that they're not wanting to come out and say anything dangerous. I've never had a woman in a company disagree with me, ever, you know, in this roles. But I've had many of them say, my, my management's never going to buy this. Many. So that's my answer to why you can't find them. So what can we do to, to get more women in futurism, for example? And should we be even trying to do that? I mean, like in their in professional capacity, you said that they're intuitively and naturally more inclined to be futurists, but how do we get them to make the step in, from, you know, being naturally and intuitively inclined to do that to being professional, to being in the industry, in the field? Because honestly, how many other women do you know being futurists other than you? I know, I know, I know. There's a few, but yeah. very few compared to the industry I know overall. a few. I, there's a woman named Sarah Devonzo. I don't know if you've ever had her on. She was like head of no. research at L'Oreal, and she's just left and gotten, a, like in a way, a, a more adventurous job. So she's one. A woman named Kathy Hackel, I think, calls herself a futurist. I think she probably is. No, there are not a lot because you, you don't want to... Look, it's hard enough to fight the fight. 
in business in Fortune 200, being a female, being organ rejected as a female, uh, you know, for the most of up till now, uh, then you call yourself a futurist also? I mean, <laughs> yeah, no. So I think that's why. Okay, let us touch a bit on the Faith Popcorn Brain Preserve. What is it? What do you guys do there and what's its mission? So Brain Reserve, when I started the company, I couldn't afford to hire anybody, of course, right? So it's called Brain Reserve. And the reserve was I had a, uh, a group of 14 people I really respected. And we brainstormed together. And we couldn't get brain trust because at that time, maybe still true, you could, a bank was the only one. And how, how wrong that was. The only one that could use the word trust, they could, you couldn't call yourself a trust, only banks, which is so untrustworthy. But anyway, so I called it Brain Reserve, and that's how my talent bank started. I started to collect people that were actually making the future. So people that were doing like skin grafts to create an embryo, you know, really like interesting you know, maybe science people and life people and food people and all kinds of people. So that's where brain reserve comes from, that word. And what's your mission? My mission is to com continually, no matter what, rain, sleet, snow, and derision, bring a vision of what's coming, period. I don't only bring it to business, you know, I bring a vision of what's coming. And hopefully, I'm a warning system, uh, a warning system in a, in a body to say, this is coming, this is going to sink you, here's the hole. Maybe it's like, I don't know, being so worried all the time. It's a Jewish thing, you know. By the way, my Italian story, I'm 100% Jewish. They did not do their research either at Fortune magazine when I said Papa Corny. But um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we worry. We Jews worry a lot about, you know, everything. And uh, yeah, so that's my mission, to say what I believe is coming. Okay, let's grab that mission and see how far we can run with it then. So let's say that usually you work, you say, with uh, Fortune 200 companies, but let's say today the client is humanity, the human yeah. civilization. And we come to Faith Popcorn and we ask, Faith, what are the major issues or trends that we should be looking at? Oh, that's not as hard as I thought you were going to ask me to tell humanity was coming. Uh, the trends that we should be looking at. Well, it depends why you want to look at something. Do you want to make money? Are you just curious? Do you want, you know, the number one question I ask when I speak, do a lot of speaking, people raise their hand, what should my children study? You know, what should they, that's people very interested in that. Uh, well, the trends, well. You tell us, what do you think is the highest priority trend that we should be 
keeping an eye on or trends several, let's say the top three, so, if it's more than one, that we should be aware of and keep an eye on and maybe even do something about. So we give you yeah. a total well, blank slate. I'll give you an easy one, which people are still rejecting, but it's alternative reality. So as the planet gets tougher and tougher to live on, then we could go back to what trends could save it, but I don't honestly have a lot of hope for that. Uh, but anyway, alternative reality is right now expressed in the metaverse, um, where people find it more and more difficult to live in IRL, in real life, physical life. So they look to live in almost a uh, like a parallel life that's happier or more pleasant or easier to navigate or but right now it's not you know people aren't sure about it because it's not that easy to navigate i'll tell you what's going to make it easy because you still sometimes have to put on this oculus and oh and like look through and learn like the um kids have an easier time with it because very similar to gaming as a matter of fact it grew its popularity grew out of gaming gaming is an alternative um uh reality uh, and and kids are living in it more and more. Soon we're going to have education in the metaverse where your kid can jump in to uh, learn the civil war by taking part in a, you know, civil war and they can figure out, you know, what sides and what really happened and actually, they say gamify, but I'll, I'll say make it much more, history becomes more real. So I think we'll be doing that. Uh, will be treated in the metaverse, will be like, you know, uh, you know, you'll see your doctor there, you'll go to concerts there, you'll meet significant others there, you'll be able to take on different, um, what, uh, skins they call it, but like avatars are, who are you really? Like, popcorn was just the beginning. You know, I could have many, many different personalities and expressions, so I think, I think that, I don't want to call it just the metaverse because it's too small. Uh, I think alternative reality living uh, is definitely coming. And and then after that, we could talk about that, you know, uploaded consciousness, and that's another thing that's into death and things like that. But, you know. So do you think those are the, the most important that's trends that we should pay attention to? Uh, two, you know, another one is going to be, because uh, identity is wrapped up in that, and a lot of things, you know. Um, but an another one is if you were interested in trying to save this planet, and I, it's so funny we say save the planet, we don't even hear those words. When you're saving something, it means it's on its way to the end. Otherwise, it wouldn't need saving. Uh, so I would say that goodness, which is what I tried to bring to Campbell's Soup once, because they were the mm, good company, and I thought that was an enormous vision, uh, like one of my best. Um, so why don't you tell us that story here then? My favorite chairman of all time, he's retired now. He was like, you know, like, I took a picture of him once. He was reading The Road Less Taken. It was like a spontaneous photo. Nothing on his desk. That explained him. He was like out there, but seemingly 
conservative, wore a suit, very nice. And, you know, he was like, you know, very handsome guy and very, but he was out there. And he hired me to say, what's the future of Campbell's Soup? I said, the mm, good, you've had mm, good for a hundred years. The kids that go, Campbell's Soup is mm, good. I said, goodness is the thing that's coming. People want companies that are good. This is before all this stuff about, you know, we invest in, the, you know, we give to charity and we're a good company and we don't use bad ingredients and all that goodness stuff, which by the way, most of it not true. But um, so I said, you really have the opportunity and you can, you know, we could have like soup vans go across the country and feed people. We could show that tomatoes are, you know, anti-cancer, you know, they have beautiful ingredients in them. Um, we could take it out of the can, and my presentation was a bunch of soup cans with tomato plants growing out, like vines, and I got Martha Stewart, before she went to jail, to say that she would, like, you know, work with him and help him and everything, and, you know, and then his people were not so much in the boat, and they go, but Doug, you know, suppose somebody in the company does something not good, and then what are we going to say, you know, but he stuck with it, but then he got in a terrible automobile accident. I'm telling you, the, 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 the powers are against futurism because he, and he couldn't execute this, of course, and they killed it as soon as he was out of commission. But he says now that was, he thinks the greatest miss, you know, in, in, his career, not his fault. And I think it was one of the greatest visions in my career that people would want goodness. And the reason, I, I was going to say, the reason I felt confident about this with him is he was good. This man, very, I can say that about very few people, was a good human. So I'd say that's another trend I think would save the planet if we could find the goodness in us and become a little, not a little less selfish, a lot less selfish and more good. So what year was that? That has to be 15 years ago, 18 years ago. Yeah, so early that 2000s? was before, you know, these various companies. Well, Ben and Jerry's, two guys I know, they were good. They were very early to do 1% for peace, you know, donate. Uh, you know, they, they were very good. And even when they were acquired, which I was very worried about, they were acquired by Unilever. And I go like, oh, my God, the end of Ben & Jerry's. But they managed to keep their identity. And Unilever, I guess, understood that their identity was so pure and excellent and kind of left them alone after a while and let them do their thing. So, um, But this goodness vision was early, early on. It reminds me a lot to Patagonia, which is my favorite company, uh, with a, a kind mm -hmm. of a very similar uh, vision, I think, about goodness and in practical terms what it means and how they can do or play their part to, to make it happen. But let's grab the other idea here about saving the planet. So if we are to shift attention on what are the things that could require us to save the planet from, or what are, in other words, 
the major threats or existential challenges to our civilization in general or our planet, however you want to call it? What are the things we should look out there and, you know, watch for? You see, I can't prove this. And I hope, I mean, I know you're a different kind of man. I can see that. And you're a gentleman. But when men run the planet, which they do, you know, <laughs> men like to fight. They get a kick out of it. They, as boys, you know, they hit each other over the head. They, you know, it's proven that men like this. And when you have men in charge of, you know, winning, winning everything, winning things they don't even want, just winning and winning, it's very hard to uh, save the planet. You know, women, the birth mothers, Mother Nature and the birth mothers, I think would be more, uh, like more successful if they were in charge, because I don't think that they would want to send their kids into war. I think they have natural maternal instincts, many of them, not all of them, toward children. They couldn't bear, I don't think they would be bombing schools with children in the basement. They couldn't. It goes against their psychology and their, and their, and their actual DNA. So, um, I think that would be a start to get more women, you know, running things. Uh, that's where I would start. Well, so so you're making the argument that some people have made recently that, for example, countries that have been run by women, like whether it's New Zealand, whether it's um, Taiwan, etc., etc., had a much better outcome whether with lower mortality rates, whether with lower uh, infection rates, whether with lower economic costs during the pandemic. For example, countries that were run by women fared much better off. And I think there's a lot to be said about that. I, I totally accept that, especially for some of those cases. Now, uh, Scandinavia, maybe also a few other good options, like whether it's... Uh, think Finland, whether it's uh, a few other countries there, but um, maybe Iceland was another one of the examples. I forget if they're, if they're run by a woman right now or not. But then we also have the opposite examples. We have Margaret Thatcher, who started the Falklands War. We have Madeleine Albright, who said that uh, the embargo against Iraq, which resulted to something like I forget, 250,000 deaths in children for the duration of the embargo due to the lack of medical supplies and stuff was a cost worth paying in her mind. What about Golda Meir, so. <laughs> also pretty tough girl? What about Queen Elizabeth? Yeah, she was in a... T I'm willing okay. to give her a much bigger break, what about Queen personally Elizabeth? speaking. Yeah, because like she was in a tougher spot and you can make a much more bigger argument that it's a... It's a fight for existential survival, right, where Margaret Thatcher was fighting for mm -hmm. her political survival. And, you know, before the Falklands War, her popularity has tanked and the polls were showing she's not going to survive, politically speaking. She started the Falklands War and boom, 
her popularity. Because men were voting for her. Which is why, you know, political... Men were voting for her. Yeah, Pardon? killing people. Yes, and, and they loved yeah. her nickname, which yeah. was the Iron Lady, right? So she was famous for being tougher yeah. than the guys in the room. Uh, but look at look at look at look at Queen Elizabeth, the colonizer, the perpetuator of slavery. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm fighting on your side, but I'm saying in general because are these really women? Are these really women, or are they infused with? testosterone and ideas because according to Freud which I'm not sh I, I, I think like there's <laughs> a lot to be said against it at this point but you know this idea of penis envy that women really want to be men they want to have penises that's their you know that's the what do you call it the, 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 the idea of power testosterone penises you know that many many of these women leaders maybe are infused with that, and here's their opportunity to act like men. That's how it would explain it. So, yeah. So we do have exceptions. Um, anyway, let's go back to the trends and to futurism. So what is futurism in general, and what is what you refer to as applied futurism? So futurism in general, like we have 17, we call them trends. I would call them truths uh, in this bank, let's say. And each one explains a different part of what's going to happen. So there's vigilante consumer, you know, uh, people getting angry, going on strike. You see unionization at Starbucks and others. You're going to see a lot of this. You know, that's one cocooning. I explained people, you know, going inward, staying home. Uh, I mean, uh, like uh, like uh, uh, anchoring, which is spirituality. You can see 17 visions. If you put it on your face in an oculus, these 17 holes, you would see. And I broke them out like that so people could understand them better. You know, because if you give somebody a whole picture at once, it's very difficult to absorb. So I broke them into pieces. Put on Oculus, you see the future. That's what our, my vision of the future, you know, is. So you have what we may call 17 yeah. types of lenses through which you're looking at the future. But, but what is futurism in general and okay. what is applied futurism? What's, what's the distinction there between the two? Methodological so futurism is approaches. a general view of the future, broken into 17 pieces in our lexicon. Applied futurism, so we come with this. When we come to a client, I think we have a very good idea of what's going to happen to whom and where and how and all of it. But when we come to a client, they want to know what does it mean to them. It took me quite a few years to figure out why I wasn't getting business, because they didn't want to know what was going to happen. They went, what does it mean to me? Hey, that's applied futurism. So we'll say, you know, if you're a food company, you know, what does it mean to you? I remember we worked with Tyson Foods, which Tyson's the largest protein producer, in, I think, in the world still. And I remember early on, we said to John Tyson, 
vegetarianism is coming. And it has to what be year was that? 20 years, 18 years, 20, more, ago. Ago? So 2000. I think it was in the Popcorn Report that was 1992. Popcorn Report, which I didn't want to write in a, like, you know, I, I just hate this idea of packaging things, you know, so it's packaging what I do. Uh, popcorn, because it makes it so unfluid. As soon as you write it down, you can't, like, you know, dream on. So, uh, uh Vegetarianism is in the Popcorn Report, 1992. So that's why I wrote those books. Yeah, it benchmarked what so I was 30 saying. years ago. Right? So John Tyson, bless his heart, he goes, like, if you're going to talk that way, Miss Popcorn, maybe we shouldn't be working together. Like, that was a curse word to him. But gradually, as he, I think, got more trust and we got closer and friendlier, and I think he began to see that it was a bit away, so he didn't have to worry about it that much. <coughs> but I think he began to see, and they started to acquire companies that would fill that hole. That's the best I can expect, really. Like when we say to, like we worked deeply, like with an Indra Nui, let's say at Pepsi, and go like, sugar is, you're on tobacco road with sugar. Can't, you know... Tobacco Road, finally, we say cigarettes give you cancer, kill you. Sugar, fats, sugar, same. So if you're, you know, I think that, um, I think that it, like, we helped her write, you know, her Bible of, um, like, her whole thing about, you know, doing good. And, you know, originally when she came on from CFO to CEO, uh, her, her whole thing, but I think she began to see that, and 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 she started to get into good for you, and she went deeper in there. Uh, yeah, so um, that's applied futurism. What it means to a particular company. What does it mean to communication companies? What does it mean to uh, pharma companies? That has been a little bit tough, because pharma companies. I think now even exceed banks in being hated and government. You know, people don't trust them, right? But I think what COVID happened, they sure, saw yeah. that science really could save people. And I think that there's a great, we call it pharma karma, a great opportunity to come back and like, you know, do, you know, do good. But that, anyway, that's applied futures and what it means to a company, an industry, a person. Yeah, it's impressive to me if you kind of isolated the trend towards veganism in, in the early 90s. That's that's pretty impressive. Uh, and I can see how a lot of people would be pushing back. You know, I'm a keynote speaker. That's how I actually make, make a living. The podcast and everything mm -hmm. I do online is kind of free. And then I, I charge for my keynotes. And mm -hmm. I'm, I've been vegan now for six years. Uh, probably one of the best decisions I've ever done in my life. And so I was uh, pitching or my agent was, was pitching me for a poultry pre uh, industry, poultry producing conference in South America. And uh, that was maybe three or four years ago where the poultry producers of South America were gathering and they were asking to look into the future. And I told them basically my pitch is uh, 
the world that you know will change uh, and the future is vegan and I'm here to tell you how and why and if you're open to hear that message, maybe help you find out the way as per what you can do about it to ride the trend or ride that wave of change rather than get drowned and right. you know right. destroyed right. by it. And, but my pitch was unsuccessful. They decided that I'm too much outside of their zone of uh, yeah. sort of comfort. And that message was like not necessarily the message they wanted to have at the conference because I was going to be the opening keynote speaker. Uh, and so they were afraid that the kind of tone I'm going to set for them would be kind of doom and gloom. The end of the world is coming. Uh, <laughs> because my title was the future is vegan. So imagine how well, that goes. Maybe you should not have told them the what you're going to conference. speak about. <laughs> no, uh, I, I wanted to be a hundred percent, you know, and I'm always very open with my clients or potential clients. I, so that they have the full capacity to decide if, if my message is for them or not. Because again, my, my name is Socrates and a lot of people don't appreciate what I have to say. Uh, and that's okay by me. Uh, so if, if that's not the message they want to hear, that's okay. But there's a cost that they would pay for refusing to listen to something that may be actually beneficial to them. Because right. you can ignore reality for only so long and then it's maxi over well, the you head. You know, lab-grown lab meat is going to be the future. I mean, people don't have to give it up. I mean, those poultry people really should be investing in lab-grown. In Singapore, there's some beautiful stuff being made. I mean, Beyond Burger and all those is not as good, really, for you. A lot of, like, but at least it's not meat. And if you've ever seen a cow go up that ramp to slaughter, or you've walked into a, you know, a, what do you call it, like a, a chicken coop, uh, industrial I became this way because in France, I was like in south of France, right? And there was these mimists, you know, people that act out things. They were holding screens, four of them. One showed a cow going to slaughter. One showed a chicken being slaughtered. One showed a pig. Pigs, smarter than dogs, right? You know, pigs are fantastic. Yeah. They're yeah. actually, they have so the intelligence I, of that a was toddler, it. by the way. And, but my kids also had stopped eating meat before me, you know, but, um, it is absolutely bad for the planet, bad for humanity, bad for your heart, bad example. It's murderous, you know, it's cruel and you can't think it tastes that good once you realize that. And yet a lot of people would argue that the future is, uh, sort of yeah. paleo, you know, low carbs, high fat and high protein, Free yeah, range, if it's lab-grown, kind of Go hunt your own food. But not things that walk around with legs and make animal noises that you can hear on TikTok. No. So they're wrong, Nicola, Socrates. They're wrong. <laughs> let's, let's talk a little bit here about technology and mm -hmm. in general and AI in particular. So... I mean, my podcast name is Singularity FM, used to be called Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. So we have to talk about AI, we have to talk about the singularity, we have to talk about transhumanism. So what's your take on artificial intelligence in particular and the technological singularity in general? 
First of all, I say to people when they say artificial intelligence, I go, drop the artificial. It's going to be real intelligence, I believe, that can learn from its each other. Like we learn from each other, they will be learning from each other and getting smarter and smarter. Elon Musk says it's the greatest threat to society. I mean, I don't, yeah, but that's what I think going to happen. And, um, you know, I believe, I, I believe that we will become more melded already. It's happening with machine, you know, that, well, you know, as soon as you have a fake knee, you now have a machine in you or, uh, like a, like a, you know, a pacemaker or a artificial, anything diabetes release system in your body, you know, it's, you think it's going to be. I'm severely short-sighted, so I can't literally so, see without there. my contact but lenses. But soon your contact lenses won't have to be a lens. That's going to be over in about five minutes. And, you know, I mean, now you can have your, your eyes fixed to some degree, but soon you're going to be able to, like, you sure. know, look into a screen or something and they'll be able to adjust it or swallow a little box something and it'll be fixed or you know, your spine, you know, walk in, say, like, spine rejuvenation done. You know, all this medicine where there's blood and cutting, I think is going to be soon regarded as, oh, my God, remember when we used to cut people open to take out cancer? Like, so primitive. So, you know, I definitely think that that's coming. So you think that AI is coming, and you think that you said, yeah, we, Elon is right when he says it's the because greatest humanity, threat to humanity, but yet somehow you're not I worried. I, you it know doesn't what? seem Futures, you're worried about it. I make myself sleep better at night because I say, I'm just the messenger. I'm just the messenger. I have to tell myself, I'm not making the future. It doesn't matter what I think. You know, it just matters that my mission is to say, you know, what, you know, what's coming. It's the greatest threat to humanity as we know it, but humanity is changing. We're evolving. Suppose we thought, like, if dinosaurs evolved, you know, into birds or whatever, and or people or like, you know, that they shouldn't have. They should have stayed that way. You know, we're in a constant state of evolution. So you, I think humanity is not going to be 100% human the way we think of it. And I think intelligence will be boosted. And I wrote about this in 1990, brain chips. We worked for a large technological company. It was actually a military company that had like, you know, things in the air that, you know, could see where to bomb. Uh, you know, like at that time they were using like radar and, you know, to, and we said to them, you know what? Place a chip in a child's tooth. It's a grandma present. And we did research. A grandma would pay at that time, so 1990, uh, $5,000 in $1990 to buy this chip. Put it in your grandchild's tooth and those things could locate your kid if he was snatched. And they could do it. And do you know what they said to me? No, we're not going to do that. They go, like, why? They said, so they didn't argue that people would want it. Their argument was the first kidnapper that comes along and rips somebody's teeth out to find it, yeah, unlikely, 
there would be bad press. So every large company can spin decisions and leading to bad press like nothing. If they paid more attention to making good stuff instead of thinking about what bad press they're going to get if they put in advances, and that thing never happened, they put it in sheep because if sheep wandered, there's a chip in your dog. I think today pets are chipped, but not in your kid. You know, chipped. Isn't your kid important? Yeah. So they'll put a chip in the backpack. Well, how many kids lose it? You know, put the first thing a kidnapper does is throw out the phone, throw out the backpack. Well, what about privacy concerns and stuff like that? And the fact that the quote kidnappers could use the same tech to locate the victim rather than to help the police or the parents to find the, the, the missing child. Yeah, then we shouldn't have computers because, you know, of geolocation. I mean, yeah, but it's the job of the people that invent this to try to, you know, to 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 put up the right kind of walls around it. Yeah, do those walls work, though, historically speaking? It doesn't seem like they have in the past. Those walls seem to be, especially in the United States, where you read hacking every day, whether it's the Chinese or the Russians or just, you know, mercenary hackers who want a ransom for a pipeline or a hospital, you name it. It's like almost a daily occurrence. And there's huge criminal organizations that are literally specializing in that. So don't work on the walls. Work on don't protect your children. We're working on the wrong thing. Work on the walls. Not saying that you shouldn't do this. Anyway, think about this. 40 years ago. No, you know. So, I don't sure, know. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, going back to AI, though. Um, what's your what timeline? When do you think we should be seeing that kind of an AI that Ray Kurzweil talks about, that Werner Vinge talks about, that many of the futurists talk about, and that, you know, have divided the world. People like Ray Kurzweil being on the very optimistic side, uh, saying that we would become one with the AI. That's kind of the idea of transhumanism, perhaps, the merger between men and machines that you were talking about, that if you have an artificial knee, you're going to be like them, and eventually we're going to have neuroimplants and cognitive enhancement and all of that. But then you have people like Elon Musk, who is paradoxically mm -hmm. a big investor in many of those AI companies, but also Bill Gates, yeah. uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking, the late Dr. Stephen Hawking made headlines around the world by saying that uh, the birth as of AI could be the end of humanity. So, as we know it, well, that that's a that's the the matter of interpretation, right? So some some of those people meant very literally, not as we know it, but very literally the end of humanity. Even um, Steve Wozniak and Bill Gates have made. Uh, proclamations to that effect, but especially Elon Musk, right? So literally, uh, he says that AI could be the greatest danger, more than nukes in, in his own world words, that 
could literally be our extermination. Extermination or evolution? Uh, or I think in a, in a TV interview, he said it was like trying to, to, to do in those, like in those horror movies where you're trying to kind of uh, revive or recall the evil spirit or something like that. And then everyone gets killed by it in the horror movies, right? So that's what Elon Musk likened what AI to. So that's very literally our death in his view, not 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 some kind of a in sense that you know as we know it. It's very literal. And the question death. is, when is that going to happen, or is it going to happen? No, my question is, uh, where do you stand on that debate between the the optimists like Ray Kurzweil and the pessimists who say that could be the end of us, and what's the timeline? Regardless of what the outcome could be, what's the timeline that we could expect AI to show up in the Hasn't picture? Hasn't it shown up already? Well, we have had AI everywhere. Uh, the, the argument that perhaps I would make is that this is what we would call narrow artificial intelligence, which is to say it plays chess, it plays Go, uh, you know, it, it redirects your cell phone, or it has some very specific narrow application in a specific field or realm, which is not generally applicable outside of that specific realm or field, which is mm -hmm. which it is designed for. Whereas general intelligence would be able to not only play chess, but to drive your car, to drive an airplane, to take care of your grandma, to babysit your kids, you know, to to be a companion to you mm -hmm. when you're lonely, to be your BFF, uh, to 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 listen mm -hmm. to uh, your confessions, like and and give you life advice. All of this, you know, to replace humans in all of those other functions. I think that it's. I know you're on the side of it's much later. I think it's sooner. Uh, I think it's not incremental. I think there'll be jumps. You know, like everything we think, oh, at this rate, it's going to take 60 years, 100 years. Maybe we say that to make ourselves feel better. I think it's going to be faster. I think, you know, like if you read Clara and the Sun, my favorite book, Ishiguro, about a companion to a young girl, um, I think, hmm? Kazuo Ishiguro, the Nobel laureate in literature. It's very good to read that book because it makes it much more real. You can see how that could happen, and the and the and the companion could could feel, learn to actually feeling got better at feeling as it went along. Um, so I think it's going to be sooner. I think it's going to start with those kind of things, like safety. Like you know, wouldn't it be great if you had a little bot take your kid to school, or be on the bus, or be in its pocket. Or, you know, like, like, or little companions or for elderly little companions. We're seeing robots in the operating room already. Um, actually, they're so much more accurate than human doctors. So as soon as that, you know, I think that's how it's the frog in the water. By the way, that's a myth. You know, when a frog gets dropped into hot water, it jumps out. But by the way, but anyway, you know, it's going to go slowly, slowly. And then, and then you're there. So you're a lot more optimistic on AI than, or you're kind of largely, yeah, it seems to me, ships. alongside Ray Kurzweil's You're going to rent brain uh, chips. Line. They're going to, you know, you don't have to learn French. You don't have to learn math. Chip, chip you. 
Maybe you're going to lease them, not buy them. They'll be maybe expensive in the beginning. As it becomes more convenient or we can make more money with these chips or we can get rid of something annoying like the screen, uh, we're going to incorporate them. We're not going to be thinking big, deep, philosophical, brilliant thoughts about, oh, is this bad for humanity? We always do things that make things easier or making more money. That's easier, making more money, healthier. Okay, so let's go there then in terms of you, you, you mentioned bad for, for humanity. Let's, let's, let's bring in ethics here and see. So, first of all, should we bring ethics in the conversation of futurism at all? Well, as I said, futurism to me is the reporting of what's coming for my part in it. Tell me something then, Nicola. How much of ethics... And soon you might morph over to religion, even worse. But how much has ethics influenced our decisions? Well, I would say almost 100%. As Aristotle said, if you want to do ethics, you have to do ethics. If you don't want to do ethics or philosophy, you have to do ethics. So saying that there is no ethics is a kind of an ethics. Saying that there are no rules is a general rule, which is the framework, an ethical framework within which you make your decisions. And saying that there are rules are there for the rules within which you make your own decisions. And then we can go and unwrap what those rules are. But to me, it seems that it's unavoidable uh, at some level or another. So. You just said before that that it, it all comes down to, to money, for example, uh, or, or one of the two things that you mentioned was it comes down to money. Well, that's a kind of ethics. Money is a value within a system of values. And any system which ranks things in order of value is an ethical system. So you could say, well, that person has no ethics, they just care about money, but that is their ethical system. And the highest value, the most prized item in their ethical system would be money. So, but they still do have an ethical system. And if you say, well, it's spirituality or if it's their personal fulfillment or if it's like their children's welfare or what have you, those are all their own respective ethical systems and so therefore to me it seems that it's, it's it's impossible to avoid because every time you have to make a decision you have to rank mm -hmm. and prioritize out of several options and the moment you do that you're doing ethics the only choice you have is is it explicit where you actually properly weigh all the opportunities within a kind of a methodological ethical system or you do it unconsciously and implicitly without any awareness and you just proceed. But either way, it's unavoidable, I think. And that actually brings me to a question I have for you because you said, I'm a futurist, so I'm about what's coming. This is where I want to push back a little. Uh, Philip K. Dick, I think, said once that if something is inevitable, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't resist it. 
And the, another way of putting this is that kind of view of the future, let's say something is coming, whether it's a technology or a trend or an occurrence, an event and stuff like that. Let's say Cassandra predicted Troy would fall. That's an event. Uh, kind of brings this kind of inevitability and lack of agency. And what what I want to push back with as a philosopher is like, well, are we helpless observers or are we active participants? And my answer to that is I want to, and that's been kind of at the core of my work for the last 17 years, is I want to inspire people to stop being spectators and to jump on the arena and become participants. And therefore, instead of having a passive spectator uh, role, to embrace and take responsibility for an active one, instead of letting the future happen to you, trying your best, even if you fail or when you fail, trying your best to proactively create the future. So you tell me where you see futurism in your role within that kind of reasoning, because you see, and that's one of the reasons why I don't like to be called futurist, even though I am being called and, and I even call myself occasionally when I have to sell my keynotes. But first and foremost, I'm a philosopher and an ethical philosopher, because to me, that's the starting point. It's not about, is it the future coming? It's about, is it a good future to me personally or a bad one? Is it some, some future that we can steer towards a better outcome or a worse outcome? Say, take global warming. We know it's happening. It's a scientific fact. You cannot argue with the, the science about it. We know the rough timeline. And so the question then is, do we do something about it or we don't? And how much? Uh, and what should we do about it? And those are all ethical questions. But the trend may be coming if or what we do about it is how we can sort of position ourselves with respect to the future and eventually, hopefully, steer it at least, if not shape okay. and create it entirely. So I, even though I say, like, I report it, I have tried to change it. Um I would say I've laid myself down, you know, in companies to say you have to, you know, hire more women, you have to promote them, you have to take your hands off their neck. Um, you have, you know, like uh, diversity, I hate that word. Every time they package with a word, you don't feel the hurt anymore. You know what I mean? So, you know, people tell me they can't find any, like, black people to hire. They can't find it. It's just amazing and like I go like let's go to Howard University um, you know my partner in the business Tiana Holt brilliant black I mean we listen to that together and we're like oh, we could have this whole company filled with black people in about 10 minutes smart black people brilliant black people courageous black people but there's such a resistance so we you know we're always trying to do that I was on Pepsi's case for 25 years you want to keep employees, bring childcare in. And finally, Indra, practically on her last like month at the company, put childcare into purchase. So yes, I try to interrupt 
if you call it ethical structure, you know, I try to interrupt the future, getting Tyson to make things other than, you know, the things that have to, that have faces on them, let's say. Uh, so I would say, yes, you can try very hard to change outcome or create outcome, but it's slow haul. I mean, it's slow. Yeah, of course, we're influencers. We, we, you know, people come up after and go like, help me get a job, help me get out of this company. I, you know, I said, I didn't come here to free the slaves, but I'll try, you know, I'll try to like, you know, I mean, this whole <laughs> revolution we're having, I don't know how much, I don't know what you think about it, but this, this reason not to come to work is we let the workers out of jail and now, because they worked at home and they had a very good time, you know, yeah, they worked hard. They work hard. People work hard at their jobs, but they like to be with their kids and they grew their gardens and they cooked and they did all these things. You think you're going to get them back so easily? You are not getting them back. They now, many of them, you know, in our research would rather leave the company than come back to work. Five days, never. So we were like battling that, will there be a four-day work week someday? Now we're saying three days, two days, no days. That's, to me, kind of the mm -hmm. biggest shift during COVID is the value shift. Forget about the technical details, the location details. It's the value shift. It's the fact that uh, yeah. and everything else follows from there. Back to my previous claim. It's like the fact that people awoke to the fact that the jobs they've been doing were underpaid and unsatisfactory and were taking mm -hmm. way too long to commute to and from. Freedom. And now that they've tasted some limited freedom and independence over their own timeline, over their own location, uh, over when they can take a lunch break and take care of the kids and, and do remote work, they had reassessed uh, their values and their priorities and, and what are the important things to them uh, and started taking action to kind of live more in keeping with those newly rediscovered values. So people are, for example, I am here in Toronto. Uh, the, the real estate has been the most wow. explosive in North America in Toronto for the last 20 years, but uh, probably second to Vancouver only. But, you know, in the U.S., uh, the real estate crashed in 2008, 2009. In Canada, that never happened uh, to begin with. And now we've had an even bigger boom than you guys. And, of course, if you take all the construction cranes in all the major metropolitan cities in North America and you add them up together, the number is lower than what you would see just here in Toronto. Uh, so, but, but the point is many people are moving out of the city and the real estate values have increased tremendously in the suburbs and even places that you drive one or two hours away in farms and smaller communities and stuff because people have rediscovered the freedom uh, of not commuting and, and having their own kind of dream or peace or location and, and working from there um, and moving away from the hustle and bustle of the city. Uh, and, and, and they started placing value on that and spending time more with their family and their kids. So the biggest change in my books has been one of change in values 
uh, and change in, in what is really the, the priorities that people rank their life within. Uh, and that's why many are not willing to do the jobs they used to be willing to do or not for the money that they used to be willing to, to do them for. And, and they're not willing, not as many people are willing to drive an hour and a half each way every day yeah. to a job that's probably underpaid. Right. So to me, that's the biggest shift. And, and that's why I say that, that the biggest change in it's an human, is human not in behavior. technology uh, that we are observing in my. Right. In humanity, I would call it generally even. Uh, so the biggest changes that we're witnessing and that we have witnessed in the last 20 years, it's not like social media or, uh, you know, Google and what have you. It's a change in humanity. So when you're talking about a change from, you know, in real life to the metaverse and virtual reality and stuff like that, I say, or, or augmented reality, which is, you know, the hybrid reality between real reality and sort of interposed layer of virtual reality on top of the real reality, I would say that's nice and interesting, but the deeper change and shift is the change and shift in humanity. Because what happens is first we change the tools and then the, the tools change us. And then our values change. And then that process keeps happening. So to me, as a philosopher interested in human beings, the most interesting changes are not the technical ones, but are the human changes, human shifts and those are best reflected in values. The Zoom, okay. Of course, and the technology gives the opportunity for that, but the technology mm -hmm. uh, was invented by us. So we were the drivers, we are the change agents. It's not the technology. And just like we invented one kind of technology over another, Therefore, we have the agency. Uh, we can use the same technology for multiple applications which are mutually incompatible or exclusive and thereby determine the future outcome of our civilization. So even the same technology, you know, I grew up in, in the Eastern Bloc behind the Iron Curtain. I was 14 years old when uh, the communist world collapsed in 1989. Actually, I was 13 years old. Anyway, um, we had the same trains and planes and crappy cars and black and white TVs, not of the same quality as you guys, but roughly the same technologies that the West had, but we used them to build the dictatorship of the proletariat, as we were told. Whereas in the West, you had what was called, you know, a parliamentary or representative democracy. And so the same technology but different outcomes because the major choices are the political. They're not the technical ones. The major cho choices that I claim make a difference in the human civilization are never technical. They're all political. Just like you can have nuclear uh, physics and you can use it to build nuclear reactors to create energy or you can use it to create nuclear it's bombs. It's really optimistic. I mean, you make a beautiful case, and I would want to believe that, you know, we're, we're going to be in charge forever, and, you know, our goodness. 
Oh, I didn't say forever, but at least for now, we are, at least until the, the AIs are as smart but, or know, smarter than us, I think we are. Right now? No, I can't. Would you, no, would you no, disagree with I that? I wouldn't disagree with would that you? now. Because it's interesting. But I will, of course, disagree with that later. I think one thing you're not thinking about, maybe, maybe you are thinking about it, but if you had a technologically uploaded leader who was, I mean, that could go to evil or good, right? But who's more capable and smarter and can think better and can rule people better and can you know, get people, uh, like, in around him or her, probably him, maybe, I don't know. You know, it, it will, it will, it, right now, I think you're right, we're in a midpoint or a lower point to techno technology taking over, but I don't think we're headed that way towards humanism. I think we're headed toward a technologically driven or mixed with humanism future. Well, we are already a civilization of technology, and we cannot survive without it. So if you kill yeah. the technology, there will be massive death and destruction. Billions of people would not be able to survive. We're going to shrink mm -hmm. probably by a factor of 10, if not 20, in terms of how many people we can support on our planet, simply because it's the technology that has allowed us to procreate and have like 7, 8 billion people. Uh, and otherwise, people are coming up with estimates of maybe two or three hundred million at the most. Uh, so we are already a technologically technological civilization. But but I'm 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 still and maybe that's where you're you're assessing me or putting me in the optimist camp, is because I still think we can make a difference and we can uh, steer at least, if not reshape and change, but at the very least steer and maybe even crazy enough to to shape the future in a better direction than than it seems to be shaping right now because if you look at the science perhaps one could make an argument that science, uh, uh, global warming is inevitable others have made an argument that AI is inevitable uh, others have made an argument that mind uploads are inevitable I personally don't see any of those as fully inevitable and and especially uh, inevitable in their application, in their unique occurrence. So you can have, as I said, the same technology, but how it's applied. Yeah, but we're only this group here. You know, other people have different motives. So I have one thing I want to say about companies, let's say. Okay, so the great escape. But how are these companies going to maintain the hero worship of the companies we work. I work for Unilever. I'm so proud of it. I work for P&G. I work for Campbell Soup. You know, when the population disperses, it's hard to hold the culture, I think. So I think we're going to see, you know, big changes. And I think it was even Fortune that said maybe 50% of the companies that we call Fortune 500 will be gone, you know, because um, other other others will take over or they'll just you know, disintegrate into the ether because of their, to your point, ethics, or they can't hold, they can't brainwash fast enough or make people believe that to work for this great company is just so incredible. So, you know, I think the other thing I want to ask you is I have this fantasy that, you know, we're not allowed to reproduce 
really build a human, what you're calling a human, you know, Frank, like a Frankenstein, but a human, a human being. Are you talking about well, cloning? Building. I, can you please elaborate? Because I don't think I get okay. the, the, the meaning or the sense you're trying to convey to Is me. Is there a place on the planet where some government or some group are building humans and and human beings and programming them uh, to whatever their philosophy or 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 goals are. Well, it depends on what you mean by programming. I mean, propaganda is pretty good at programming. Just look at Russia. Now, it's just like one of endless examples. And, you know, we in the West are no immune to propaganda, but look at Russia. They do think they really? Or is that, they're denazifying I mean, do they think that? Ukraine right now, right? Well, a, a shockingly large number of people in Russia do that. And the, the examples are, are particularly shocking with, let's say, there were a number of examples. The BBC was interviewing people in the Ukraine, and, and there's this girl saying, my mom in Moscow doesn't believe me that I'm being bombed because she tells me that the Russian soldiers are coming here to liberate me. So that's a conversation between a daughter and a mother. Another guy was saying, my father, who is in a monastery in Moscow, so he's an Orthodox priest, tells me that I'm being liberated and doesn't believe me when I tell him that the Russians have destroyed our village and have killed half the people, the civilian people. So I'm talking so about So clearly the propaganda works. I mean, yeah, right? technological programming. Yeah, well, that, but I'm talking about... Isn't that the kind I'm of programming? building a human race. Sure, I, I get it. I know what you're talking about in terms of programming when you say like programming a computer, right? You're talking about building a whole human from the ground up and yeah. programming it like like a universal soldier kind of idea or what have you. But that I, I just wanted to, to 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 show that programming has a diversity of meanings and we've always done that in a way. Education is programming, propaganda is programming. Books are a way of programming. So we program and reprogram our, if this is the hardware, the software inside is being programmed and reprogrammed from the moment we're born until the moment we die. But in your sense, specifically in the technical sense, so the answer is yes, I'm sure people are trying to do that, but we're not nowhere near close to it, I think. Uh, because I've interviewed, for example, Miguel Nicolelis, um, from Duke University, and he was one of the first people who put the brain implant at mm -hmm. the real Olympics for this yeah. quadriplegic to use yeah. an exoskeleton to kick a ball to start the World Cup, for example. He's and he connected monkey's brain to uh, all kinds of devices or to rat brains to communicate remotely with each other over the internet. All those incredible experiments. He's an absolute skeptic about this whole idea. He says we don't know anything remotely close to what we need to know to be able to do that. 
He told me straight up, the singularity is not near, it's entirely bullshit, and mind uploading is not even remotely close because we haven't gotten the foggiest idea how to do it. And brain simulations, yeah, we can't even, according to him, those are all his words. Uh, you know, we, we cannot even have the, 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 the most remote simulation of a human brain. So far, the best we've done, if we accept it, is like, let's say, cat brain uh, that is being simulated for a few seconds. And to do that, we've used like supercomputers that run for months and months at a time. And in his definition, even that's a misrepresentation because that cat brain was not really a representative simulation of a proper cat brain in his estimate. Now, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't weigh that specifically and say how truthful or not. But it's curious to me to observe that some of the people at the cutting edge of that technology are the biggest skeptics about those claims. It's just like, you know, Tom Watson's, Tom Watson's computer took up a whole sure, building, Ray right? Sure, Ray that can never be time, smaller, yeah. can never do this, can never do that, because they're not smart enough to crack it. Maybe we have to, like, you know, infuse the brain with a few more, you know, or open it up and think better. But I don't, I don't buy the people, you know... I notice this in companies too. The people that are in the making today cannot make tomorrow. They're missing something. So I don't, I know they're yeah. saying that they can't and they don't and it's far away. And it makes everybody happy too. So that's, bit, you know, that's good. <laughs> but I don't think so. I think, it, I think <laughs> we're just not smart enough to do it or the people that have done it don't want to expose it. Ray Kurzweil says that the experts on the cutting edge of the field are usually too uh, hijacked or restrained by the nitty-gritty details and, and, and are cursed by their knowledge. Uh, so they cannot see the, the, the longer view or, or, or beyond the, yeah. the narrow challenges that they're facing in their fields uh, and therefore historically have been or are allegedly a lot more short-sighted. You no, know, you didn't ask me the way we see the future or how, why we have been, you know, s successful in a way. And it relates to this. We look down 25 years and it's easy to get drunk. You can brainstorm, get drunk, have lots of, you know, you know, vodka okay. or whatever and whatever it takes. And okay, in 25 years, it's going to be this way. No constraints. Then we do backcasting to the present. And then we look for the, yeah, the signs and signals of that the potential future. From there. Slower, faster, different, and then we can like kind of track it. And it's really helped us see, you know, uh, what's coming. So I say, it does futurism doesn't come from the past, which is what he's saying. The people that live in the present, and the past, they they can't do it. But you have to look far future to to see the signs of those people or engineering or technology that can do it. I like that actually a lot. That's probably my favorite thing so far that you've said. Futurism doesn't come from the <laughs> past. Therefore, futurism comes from the future. I, I like that a lot. Uh, so how do we do that? Let's say I'm a futurist who has no clue about the future or I'm just an average Joe. How do I see the future? How it's do scenario. I? You just imagine a future. So different people imagine different futures. Some people, I think, are better at it, more imaginative. 
futurism is just stories. You know, that's why science fiction shouldn't be ignored. A lot of, like you, you know, brought up science fiction writers, you know, they, they imagine the future. And then we say, it makes us, it's like, see, it's like, I always read the end of a book, which is terrible, but I know, but I love it because I can see how the plot is developed. I like to see how the, so it's like figuring out the end, you know, or 25 years hence, and then seeing how the plot's being developed or not, or falling off or exceeding or whatever. How do you know you're not entirely up for lunch? Like when you, because let's say you have 10 people looking out 25 years ago, yeah. you're going to get 10 different views, even if they're professional futurists. That's my impression after having a bunch of these conversations. We never agree on anything. I don't think so, though, because even you said that if there's singularity or whatever, it's going to be, it's just, you think it's much further away. You didn't say it's not going to happen. Okay, that's a fair point. Just timeline. Yeah, I would say, I would say, yeah, we can see the trends or most, hopefully the bigger ones, but also what we don't see and, and, and perhaps that's where kind of the differences come between you and me is like our engagement and our responsibility to shape that future, perhaps maybe, um, toward for the better. Uh, more useful or I mean in a way that's what you're saying too with applied futurism because I would say that you know it's futurism is about pattern recognition right seeing the patterns following them logically perhaps and either backwards or reverse engineering them from the future to the present but there's two, two or three several steps on top of that layering. So for example, it's not just seeing the patterns, it's about being able to take advantage of those patterns, to mm -hmm. ride the waves rather than being uh, drowned by them, right? It's about utilizing those patterns or those trends that you have identified. But then there's another step on top of that and that's the harder step, but it's creating them actually. Like it's much harder to be Elon Musk or Steve Jobs and create the trends than simply observe them then or then simply take advantage of them. And then finally, I would add the, the ethical dimension perhaps on the top of those three other ones and say, okay, so if you are able to create the trends of the future or of history, the question then is, are you creating them or shaping them towards a good end or a bad end, towards the better future or the worst future? Because you can say, well, Many people put an impact on history and on the future, but it wasn't for the better. It was much for the worse. Uh, whether, you know, even Putin now, Putin surely put an impact on the world uh, that he would be remembered for forever with that war in Ukraine. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Surely it's not a good thing, I would say. Not even for for his own country, I would say, not even for Russia, not even for his own, quote, legacy. Uh, I think he would be judged for that. And I think in time he would be judged very unfavorably, just like, you know, even though he is super popular right now in Russia still. Uh, and, and his popularity is being challenged increasingly and the propaganda is starting to crack here and there already. Uh, so... 
but he but without argument he did leave his impact on the present and the future therefore uh, in so many ways but it wasn't a good impact it Your was question? a detrimental destructive one no that's i'm just saying that's the difference between uh kind of observing the trends and naming them then writing them then shaping them and then finally layering on top observers. i think that we shape them because we're working in the largest enterprises in the world and and not only telling people what's coming we you know but warning them against the bad things that they could be doing you know contributing to what's coming so i think in that way we try you know we do our part to say like People are going to catch on to you. They're going to, you know, break the corporate veil. They're going to look under there. They're going to realize sugar's bad and fat's bad and that you're not donating enough money and, you know, you're not promoting women's or or diversity or, you know, supporting kids or whatever. We do. We do lay down, you know, do do that. But I'd say our main... Yeah, yeah, and you have you do have a history of, like, Warning Kodak about the future of film being digital, Coca-Cola about bottled water. Or... You know, the way that co these companies are constructed, we have predicted revolutions sure. in companies. You know, um, to say people are restless and unhappy, yeah. especially women, especially women and men of color. You know, they're miserable. Um, so... We sensitize, I guess, maybe management to, 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 to look at these things. However, I think our main purpose is to even like jump over this now and look even further as a system, like I told you, a warning system. That, and, and, and we're not, I don't think we're, uh, maybe my yeah. ego is too small. I, I don't think we're, we think of ourselves as a changing system. I think we think of ourselves more as a warning system and leave the changes to the people that are creating, like, you know, future destruction. Example, like we work with a big, like, company that makes uh, a lot of plastic bottles. We were hired to say, how can we, you know, how can we change this? How can we help this? You know, mm -hmm. it's pretty complicated, but etc. And we came up with some very interesting innovation people that were working on like tubes to capture it. I mean, all kinds of things. But let me say this, they don't want to do it. Why? Because it says it brings too much attention to the fact that they make so many plastic bottles. There's a lot of considerations in politics and fear of change and a lot of things and reasons why people fail to acknowledge or embrace or do anything about your predictions. And that's why you started with you opened up that in a way you're like Cassandra, um, so you know that that that's a very fair uh, way of putting it. I think. Um, I think it's been a couple of hours now since we started our conversation today with you. Let us bring our conversation here slowly towards the end. And first is. Where can people well, find more about com. you and your work? We have a website. I have a podcast called Jolty, which, um, you know, we it's not the size of yours. And by the way, you'd be very invited if you feel like jolting our audience. It's things that jolt you and make you, like, sick. Like, you go, like, oh, my God, like, jolty. So we have that. I have that with Adam Hamp, 
also a brilliant futurist, brilliant. He's the smartest person. Well, now I've met you, but I don't know. He's the one the smartest person I know, actually, Adam Hamd. Um, so that's one way. Uh, I guess my website, and I always answer, um, I answer anybody that writes to me. So they write to me at faith at faithpopcorn.com, and I answer them. Uh, so far, I've been able to do that, and like that, or beam me up, you know. <laughs> you know, I I, I enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I'm wondering what's the best way for us to wrap it, and I always give the last word to my guests. Um, one thing that stands out to me are two things, and you can totally go in any other direction that you prefer to, uh, is that I will take away from this conversation is that the future is not made in the past, but also about the difference in kind of futurism because it kind of brings awareness, and maybe it's arrogance, maybe it's ego because you're stating kind of humbly and more modestly than me that you're more about a trend spotter and uh, an oracle of the sense of Cassandra and kind of that's the kind of futurism that you practice. Uh, whereas, you know, I come more from the philosophical school where, you know, Karl Marx said that philosophers has, have always tried to interpret the world. The point, however, is to change it. Well, to paraphrase Marx, I would say futurists have always tried to predict the future. The point, however, is to create it in the best way possible. So that's kind of, and maybe it's my arrogance or lack of modesty, which is why I'm writing the book I'm writing currently right now on rewriting the future story, the human story. Uh, but that's kind of like some of the, elements that came out in our conversation today with you. So how do you think is the best way to wrap this this conversation? What's the message perhaps that you want to send us away with? I was on a platform, you know, a, a speech, you know, one of those convention things that you do too, with Colin Powell. And he said to me, I said, oh, Colin, please run for president. I love you. I loved him. Mm -hmm. And he said, you run for president, Ms. Popcorn. You do a better job. I go, no, no, I'm not going to be president. <laughs> I said, what can I do for you? And he said, change one child's life. And I adopted my first daughter, Georgica, from China. So when you say you can, uh, like if you know about the Chinese orphanages, I mean, they can go on and on how horrible. I, 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 pulled one kid out of there and then she wanted a sister. So I pulled Clara Cecil out of there, my second child. And I would say, if you can change, you're saying change the future. I'm saying change the outcome of one person. You know, if everybody did that and my mission, I mean, what I would love to leave behind and so far I'm nowhere with this is a global list of every homeless child that we could look at. We can go to Amazon and find anything, right? Why can't we go somewhere and find every child that needs a home, their history, the problems of adopting from that country, whatever it is, help, you know, a global like uh, repository of every homeless child. So we could all, maybe if we all took one 
there wouldn't be any. Um, now there are a lot in the Ukraine too. So I would say I would say what Colin Powell said: change one person's outcome, and you will have changed the future. Change one person's outcome, and you would have changed the future. You know, I I love that. That's brilliant, and it reminds me to. I was watching or reading an Indian story, and I forget which Indian story. Was it the Bhagavad Gita? No, maybe it was some some other Indian, ancient Indian legends and myths or what was it. But they were saying they were the, the discussion was about how you change the world and how it was impossible to change people and mm-hmm. how the same mistakes we've we're doing today we've always done since the beginning of the world and and uh, the re- response to that was if you can change one person you can change many and you can change the world so that that was the bottom line so what, when you just said to change the future change the life of one person that's what it reminded me to which which i love and i think it's brilliant you know i i me and my wife, we don't have kids. Um, we've had, uh, mm-hmm. we've been supported, supporting World Vision for probably 20 years. So we had a child in South America and then uh, one in Azerbaijan in the sort of Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, an orphan. And then and now we have another kid in Africa. But it's nothing like adopting like what you did and bringing one in your family or two even. Do it. It's not hard. It is not hard. Honestly, you know how people go, I adopted them singly. I'm not married. No partner. Maybe it's easier in a way. You don't fight about anything. You know, just make all your own mistakes. But, you know, I can't tell you. I see what you're like. And, you know, one thing I can see, I can see into, I, I feel I can see in there into you and I'm telling you, you you will be a wonderful parent and you will you will reach you will climb a level not because you saved the kid you see I thought oh I'm saving a Chinese kid you know I grew up in China no that kid saved me and that child will save you and two will save you twice as much or five Wow. <laughs> well, uh, that's, that's, I think, a perfect point to call our conversation to an end. And perhaps, let me see if I can find a quote here that I actually got today, and it was from the Bhagavad Gita. So maybe even the previous story that I was mentioning was somewhere along that book. Uh, but your call mm-hmm. to adopt a child and therefore change yourself, not only their life, but change yourself and in a way change the future and change the world, reminds me to this quote from the Bhagavad Gita. The ignorant work for their own profit. The wise work for the welfare of the world. So Faith Popcorn, I want to thank you so much for being with us today and for pushing us to work for the benefits of others, for the betterment of others for the salvation of others and therefore for our own salvation. Thank you very much.